Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. My friends, this has to be by far one of the most powerful stories I've ever had the privilege of unboxing on the story box. I first came across uh, Josh's story uh, when I was browsing through YouTube uh, not that long ago and quite literally just had to immediately reach out to this man and unbox his story. And what a story it really is. Joshua Broom is his name. Joshua Broom was considered to be the most successful pornographic film star in the world. He was in the industry for six years of his life. He did over a thousand films, uh, which is a lot of content to be producing, especially in that space. But Josh, even though he was in there for six years and he achieved high levels of, I guess, what the world calls success. And he got to the very, very top and earned uh, the fame, the wealth, the status. He got to travel the world and do the things that he wanted to do. He says that he felt this huge emptiness in his heart. The story of Josh uh, going from being battling through thoughts of suicide and emotional scars comes from him doing the 1,000 pornographic films that he does share in this conversation. But more than that, Josh's story is powerful because of where he was to where he is today and the journey of him actually getting to where he is today. Josh uh, became a Christian. He And then also not just becoming a Christian, he decided to serve God even more. Now today he's passionate about communicating a message of restoration. He is also a pastor. He's, he travels uh, all over the place uh, preaching and spreading the gospel message as well. And what's more is that he's married for five years to a woman named Hope and they have three sons. So the message is quite profound and powerful. Josh is a living testament of the power that transformation can happen in all of us. And it doesn't matter what we have done, even if it is so bad, 
there is love, there is forgiveness, there is ultimately restoration if we choose to call upon the one that does save and the one that does heal and the one that does truly forgive and give our life meaning, fulfillment and purpose. And that one that I am speaking about is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can give you that sense of purpose, that fulfillment and that restoration. No one else in this life can give it to you. Josh was at the height of his career. He had everything that he could ever want and still he was empty. How does a man go from being in an industry like pornography as some would consider it not exactly a a great industry to be in, doing so many different films And then giving it all up, walking away from it all, having thoughts of suicide and then finding hope, finding God and now spreading the message of God all over the world. My friends, this is a great conversation. I'm not going to lie. It was quite emotional for me to actually unbox because of some of the content matter that we do discuss during this conversation. I am someone that has not shied away from sharing my battle with pornography with you guys. So it was very important to hear from an actual person that was in the industry and was the, the top hear why porn is wrong and bad. So my friends, if you do get something from this conversation, and I have no doubt that you will, please, please share this one around to all your friends and your family. Uh, Don't forget to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts and make sure to to subscribe before you leave. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It's time to journey with me into this story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the powerful story of none other than my friend now, Joshua Broom. Hey man, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here, man. And and thank you so much for making the time to actually join me on, on the story box. Like I said in the introduction, and like we we're just mentioning a moment ago, you have one of the most powerful testimonies that I've ever heard. And that's saying something on the show. Uh, because I've interviewed a lot of people and heard a lot of stories, but your one hit home, especially for me, which we will get into in just a moment. But the very first question I do have for you is a question I love asking all my guests at the very, very start, which is what does success look like for you? Yeah, I think success looks like for me, um, leading myself well, because if I can't lead myself well, I can't do anything else. Um, So I think that's incredibly important. So for me, I'm in a season where um, someone who thrives on consistency I can't find that because I have three very small children. And while I I don't want to allow a circumstance or my children to impact how, you know, I lead my family, the reality is how much sleep I'm going to get and logistics for them uh, day to day changes. But for me, um, just leading myself well, you know, uh, mm-hmm. taking charge and uh, owning the things that I can control. So that that success for me, you know, leading myself well and just trying to grow. I think, you know, it's it's really important for people to have short-term goals, long-term girl goals. And for me, it's like, 
what am I, you know, I, I want to achieve something daily. I want to read something daily and I want to empower some, someone daily. And that's what success looks like for me. When was the moment for you, Josh, that you realized this was in fact success for you? Has it been this gradual thing over oh, the yeah. course of your life or was there more of a catalyst moment somewhere? Yeah. So from, uh, from a personality standpoint, I'm, uh, an achiever and high achiever. So success, um, even momentary and long-term success, uh, drives me in a lot of ways. And, uh, if you are not, if there, if there's not a why that you're serving that's bigger than yourself, that can become very unhealthy. And that has been my story for a long time, but yeah, just part of growing, um, healthy things grow and growing things change. Mm. So to, to remain healthy, there's some things in my life that I had to, you know, replace, um, reprioritize, um, things like that. I know what you're talking about with being a high achiever. I myself am one and it is kind of like that difficult struggle to keep it subdued sometimes because <laughs> it does yeah. take over and take control of your life. I'm curious, man, have you always been, like that, like from your earliest memories of wanting to achieve big? Oh, absolutely. So for me, it was, so it was born out of something unhealthy. So I grew up, um, single parent home. My yep. mom was 16 when she had me uh -huh. and I never knew my dad, um, or like in a relationship standpoint. So he lived in the same town I lived in. So I saw him in that town as I was growing up. He never rejected me, never did anything harmful to me in any capacity. Um, you know, he provided, you know, child support. He, he never did anything like detrimental to me, but he was never my father. But because logistically he was in proximity to me, it made me kind of feel like, you know, on a subconscious standpoint, like what's wrong with me? I need to prove myself. And it was like trying to figure out myself, like as a man, like how do I become the man that I see other people becoming because they have fathers and like male role models in their life. And I, I had coaches and my grandfather, but no one that was like a father figure. So for me, so yes, um, in scholastics, in sports, um, in any and every aspect of my life, I had to win or die like in, in everything I did. And to this day, like, you know, I, I love like yellow sticky notes and I'll make a list for that day. And man, I probably get too fired up when I cross something out of it. That's just who I am. Um, it, and I think that's part of like growing up and maturing. It's like, man, if, if, if that drives your success and keeps you on task, which is important because in a world of a billion distractions, how easy is it to get off task? If you have something that's, hey, um, this is a check and balance for me. It keeps me on track. I know that there's things in my day that I get to do and there's things in my day that I have to do. And as long as I achieve those things that I have to do, I, I feel that um, that need for success, but, um, long answer, really short. Yes. It's always been the case. Um, in sports as a kid, I had to win. Um, I was willing to die to do it. So, yeah. You mentioned something there that I want to sort of hone in on a little bit more. You grew up single parent. I mean, your father wasn't really there, but he was there in, in that sense, yeah. which was not in a relationship sense. Did that make right. you angry at all? The fact that he wasn't there? Um, I never dealt with anger. It was more 
Hmm. I, I don't think it ever turned to anger and I never had any animosity towards him. It was just, it, it was confusion. Yeah. And that confusion can't kind of grew into, um, as I got older and, and as the mistakes that I made grew larger, I did in a way justify those mistakes or, um, blame them on him in some way, not, not verbally, but in, in my heart, it's like, man, if that wasn't, if that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have felt this way. And I wouldn't have done that. So, um, I was never angry about that, but I was confused. So that confusion led to, I need to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Did you ever try and establish a relationship with your father? Um, I mean, we, we talked, um, a few times it, it was just, it was like a really odd thing because, you know, as a 16 year old, he, he has a kid and then he gets older and meets someone and gets married and, um, they had two kids and, you know, he had a wife and a kids and a career and, um, you know, and, and his life starts to happen. And, and as I get older, it becomes more awkward. So the times that we did talk, it was very arbitrary, you know, just, Hey, how are you? What are you up to this and that? And it's like, I know I, you know, I, I'm cognitively, cognitively aware that you are my father. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that I'm your son, but to be honest, we don't really know each other. So we don't really know what to say. And I think that while there was like a good, like a good, there was, there was goodwill there. Like he, he, he didn't like, reject me when I reached out to him, it just became weirder as I got older. Yeah. What was some of the lessons that your mother taught you growing up that you hold true or dear to your heart today? Yeah. So, um, two things, um, love the person standing in front of you, no matter who it is. Um, and then when you do something, (laughs) do it to your absolute best, regardless of what it is. Um, because she, she taught me that through example. I mean, she was a single mother and she provided for me, you know, she was working in a restaurant 60 to 80 hours a week. Um, and I, I didn't realize that, you know, we, we were never so poor that we didn't have anything, but we were never well off, but I didn't really appreciate the, 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 you know, me having, new basketball shoes or me being able to go to basketball camps or like goodness when I started modeling when I was like 13 or 14 like how much money it cost to get you know the it was like a, a comp card you know like to get like these photographs done to like kind of get in the door once you get a modeling agent and do all this stuff and driving me everywhere and I never like really understood how many sacrifices and how hard she had to work just so that I could have the life that everyone around me was having. But it was, that was no like additional pressure from them, but she was breaking her neck trying to provide for me in that way. And I never understood how hard she had to work and how much she had to stretch herself financially for, for her to do that for me. Yeah. I saw like, I grew up in, I had both parents, but we grew up, in a sort of a lower middle, like the bottom of middle class. So I wasn't able to afford like basketball shoes when I needed them and all that sort of stuff. I had to work and and pay for it. So I know that feeling of 
we didn't go without, but we just the added added things. So I, in my mind, I wanted to work my absolute butt off, which I think contributed to that high achiever mentality of I want to yeah. get my parents out of debt so we can't have nothing all the time. Like I wanted them to have something. I wanted I I wanted to have something too. So, but I, I wanted to kind of ask you. What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you want to be a model? Did you want to go into the the adult industry, or was that something that's kind of like completely out of the blue for you? Yeah, I I I think I I had saw porn like probably less than ten times in my life when I was twenty two, and I said yes to doing it. So I, it never that like to be honest, like that wasn't even a real thing to me. Like someone who did that for a living, like that was so beyond my comprehension. Um, I wanted to go to the NBA. I wanted to go to the NBA and, and play, you know, that when I was a kid, that was my dream. And then when I started modeling and acting, it's like to be, to be an actor. And the funny thing was, is like, I had a lot of success in modeling, but I wanted to be, you know, an actor. So I had some success in acting, but modeling was a thing that I found, you know, to be sick, kind of like in sports. Like I was really good at baseball, but I didn't really love it. I loved basketball, but I was better at baseball than I was basketball, but I continued playing basketball anyway. Um, kind of the same thing with acting and modeling. I was, I found success very easily in modeling, but I really wanted to act and just a lot of the complexities of acting just for me, especially having like a very strong Southern accent <laughs> and trying to do the commercial work. It's like, we cannot understand you and just going, you know, do it and doing the work, you know, taking improv classes and taking speech classes and being able to articulate things well in a way that people could understand me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was awesome. But yes, I, I wanted to be a model actor, like somewhere like in that lane, but yeah. So how did the, the path to going to pornography, how did that begin? Yeah. So I, in college, I was studying theater and I, you know, I I was auditioning for, for jobs and, you know, sometimes I would get them, sometimes I wouldn't. And my second, the second semester of my sophomore year of college, I was like, man, you know what? Um, I'm just really here for the girls and partying and like, yeah, I'm learning a little bit, but I think if I put myself in closer proximity to these jobs that I want to get, it, that's going to be really advantageous for me. So I'm, I decided to move to Hollywood and I, and I naively thought that I was just going to show up and everything was going to go great. And I was going to be famous, you know, in, in a few weeks. And the reality was um, I had more success than most people when I moved, I moved to Hollywood and I had a really rough start at first. Like I, I, I spent more time going to auditions and trying to meet with agencies and stuff like that than getting an apartment. So I stayed in a hotel for a a few nights and all of a sudden all my money was gone. (laughs) And um, luckily I met a guy who let me crash on his couch and he also introduced me to, um, he worked at this restaurant slash steakhouse. Um, I'm sorry, it's like restaurant slash bar. And they hired me on the spot pretty much. And I started working there and I got, eventually got an agent and I was doing some jobs here and there and things were going okay. And I was making really great money at that bar and I I made good, good friends and I was seeing someone. And then all of a sudden 
a group of girls walk in and then they ask me, Hey, um, have you ever thought being a, about being an actor? And I was like, absolutely. You know, I, I am an actor. And I thought like coming from my background, like in the South, um, it's all about relationships. So if you meet someone, it's like, man, who are you going to be able to introduce me to? Are you working on a project? Like maybe like, is there, is there an opportunity for me to work with that project? Can you introduce me to a director? And I was like, yes. And I was really excited. And then the conversation quickly changed because they said, no, we're talking about porn. And I was like, wow, I, I did not, I did not, I, I didn't know what to say because for me, um, I love to compare it to strangely, if this, this makes a lot of sense to me, but, um, recently I took, you know, my family and I, we went to Disney world mm-hmm. and my kids, they watch cartoons, but all of a sudden they saw Mickey mouse in person, this gigantic Mickey waving at them. And they were mortified. They were like, <laughs> it was too much. It was overwhelming. Yeah. And, and that's literally how I felt when I see these people, who are sitting at this table talking to me. These are living, breathing people, not a, not a product on a screen, not a fictitious creation. It's a person yeah. telling me that they do this for a living and they're inviting me into that world. And it was so bizarre that my curiosity honest, honestly got the best of me. Like in my gut, hard no. This is a terrible idea. My mom did not raise me to do this. I've put so much work into being where I am already. And I knew I was like, that could be a problem if I do this. But this curiosity is like, man, this is just so bizarre. I just have to check it out. And they introduced me. Um, they said, can we introduce you to our agent? And I was like, an agent? And that in some way like legitimized it. It was like, okay, they want an agent. But in my head, I'm like, am I about to go to a motel and there's going to be a guy like picking, you know, lint out of his belly button. It's going to be like <laughs> weird, but it wasn't because I, I get to this place and it's adjacent to Universal Studios. And this oh. is a giant like business complex. And I walk in this private you know, garage and there's like Beamers and Bentleys everywhere. And I go up this private elevator and I walk down this hall. And at the end of this hall, there's an office and I open the door and there's a giant desk. And this guy's sitting there with a three piece suit on with a double Windsor tie, English accent and ask me a few questions. And man, he identified very quickly every insecurity that I had. And he spoke to them. I told him, I, you know, I, I grew up living with my mom. I'm out here trying to act. Um, you know, I'm just trying to make something of myself, you know, hopefully, you know, I, I have some success in acting, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, you know, you can be famous. You're a good looking guy. There's not a ton of good looking guys in this industry. Um, and in addition to that, the industry is shifting, you know, the, the way it is because you just don't walk into a room and it happens anymore. There's these like big productions, there's these movies and these parodies and there's scripts and there's big budgets and you'll, you have acting experience. So you would, you would be the star in these films. So you could be as famous as you want. You can make as much money as you want. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, you know, in my, my head instantly, no, don't do that. And then again, I'm like, 
And I, because of my insecurity, I often said yes to things, but really didn't have any intention of going. Yeah. I was always that guy, the bad friend, you know, are you coming tonight? Yeah, man. Where are you? <laughs> nice oh. <show. laughs> yeah. Um, I, I would do that. And that's kind of what I meant. It's like, are you interested? I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and I, I didn't really, I don't know. I didn't know what I thought, you know, when we had that conversation, I didn't really, it sounded good, but I was like, man, I'm not going to do that. And then he calls me like the next day and he's like, hey, um, if you want to, to do this, the way this works is there's a lab where standardized testing takes place. So everyone oh. in that industry gets tested at the same place. That way that we can control as many variables as possible so we can minimize STDs. So you, everyone gets this test and that test has a timetable, you know, so, so for some people it's three days, 14 days, 21 days at the max, depending on what company it is. And that test has a timetable. When you show up on set, you show your IDs, you verify your test to make sure it's, it's not, um, it can't be three days close to expiring or something like that. You know, it can't be about to expire. Um, and then you fill out paperwork and then you do the scene and you get paid. So I was like, to be honest, I've been very promiscuous up to this point. It probably would not be a terrible idea for me to get this test. Sure. Why not? You know, pick me up in a town car and take me to this place, whatever. So I say yes to that because, again, really not thinking I'm going to go through with it. And I get tested and he's like, okay, um, I already have a scene book for you. It's, it's huh. booked already. It's going to be the next day. And I was like, just as soon as your test comes back, as, as soon as it gets, you know, if it comes back and everything's good, um, you know, later in the day, we'll send a car to pick you up. You go to the studio. And I was like, sure. <laughs> but didn't really like, didn't have, didn't really intend on going through with it. And the test didn't come back. It didn't come back. Um, it's supposed to come back in 24 hours. It didn't come back. And I was like, okay. And it's like, th this is one of many, many times God was like, hey, no, don't do that. <laughs> you left. <laughs> yeah, the warning signs. Yeah, and the, the next day the test came back and everything was fine. And um, he he called. He's like, hey, I verified your test. Everything's good. Um, the, this company really wants to work with you. Um, so we're going to come get you at 10 o'clock. Is that fine? I was like, sure. It's like, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> sure. And um, I'm sitting there waiting and the car gets there and I get in the car and I, I'm, I'm going to this set and I'm just like, what are you doing, Josh? Like, don't do this. Should you do this? And I was like, maybe I'll just do one. No, I don't know. Then I get there and I'm like, it's not going to be a big deal. They're probably just going to hand me a camcorder, I'll go in a room, I'll do it, I'll get a check, and then I'll never hear from anyone ever again. No big deal. And I get to set, and when I get to set, I walk in, and there's someone at the front desk. And then she directs me to where I'm going to fill out paperwork, and I fill out paperwork. And then someone takes me back into the back of the studio, and then there's catering and there's a camera one camera two there's um, someone shooting a bts behind the scenes camera there's lighting there's you know a boom guy there's you know 
assistants on set. There's probably 30 people on set, this gigantic set. And I'm just like, holy moly, <laughs> like this is legit. <laughs> and it's like, you know, just as big or bigger than several of the sets I've been on doing mainstream stuff. I'm just like, in awe. And this guy comes up to me. He's like, hey, I understand this is your first time. Here's this blue pill. Take it if you want. Don't if you don't. It's yours. It's in your hand. Throw it away. I don't care. It's yours. We need you in 30 minutes. If you've never taken that before, I would suggest only taking half. It's really strong. <laughs> and then and then there I am. And standing there and I'm like, what am I going to do? And I look over and there's this like mini stadium of lights around this like ottoman and there's a girl on it and there's a bunch of cameras around her and I'm just standing there like an idiot by myself and I'm like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go and I go in the bathroom and I'm kind of you know, giving myself a pep talk, like, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to do this? You shouldn't do this. You should leave. Maybe I should do it. I don't know. What should I do? How am I going to leave? They pick me up. What am I going to do? Call them and tell them. And it's like, for me, like, I felt like I'd gone too far. Yeah. There's no way of going back. So once I kind of, that, that was my thought process. I took the whole pill Oh. Chugged, a, chugged, chugged a water and then walked like literally like walked in the direction of where they were. The director like waved me into, you know, where I would be in screen. And like the next thing I knew, I was on my way home with a check and felt so confused and dirty and just like, what have I done? I was like, I'm definitely not going to do that again. It was like, it was, I don't, it's, it's really interesting because I can remember like literally what I was wearing, but I can't remember one second of what happened once I stepped into those lights. Um, and then, but I remember how I felt on the way home and I got there and I was like, just felt like dirty and ashamed and like really guilty. Like I had this secret that I was like, man, you know, I, I was kind of dating someone at the time. It's like, huh. no, like, no, like, no, like in your head, it was like, oh, it was just whatever. Like it was, it was, it was, it was for a movie. And there's times where, you know, when you do a movie, there's, you know, there's love scenes or you, you'll kiss someone or something like that. Like, so I was trying in my head to like justify it, like not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And then little did I know that company was, if not the biggest, one of the biggest companies in the U.S. And that scene was edited, produced and out within 10 days. And then everyone I knew had seen it. And all of a sudden it made its way to my family. You know, someone had told my family about it. Um, someone had told my brother about it. And I I had to face the music. So I told the girl I was seeing about it. And obviously she she told me to take a hike. And then soon after that, um, my agent for, for modeling and acting, I got fired. Um, didn't want to be associated with someone who did that. Um and then all of a sudden I saw that one decision absolutely destroy 
everything that was my life in that point. So that relationship ended and she was um, a very respected dancer for like, you know, she, she did like music videos and, you know, she taught at this like hip hop, like um, studio and she was a nucleus of a lot of my friends. So like I had betrayed, you know, that everyone's best friend. So all of a sudden I felt guilty. So I quit working that job at that restaurant and like all of a sudden I kind of was looking at myself. I'm like, man, I, I lost why I'm here in, in California for the, for the first place. Like that was my dream. That just is gone. Um, like, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And then the phone rings. He's like, Hey, everything went great. I would love to sign you to a contract. And very quickly, that one decision led to me being in the industry for six years and doing over a thousand films and traveling all over the world. And yeah, man, there's a lot there. Like he's a wild, wild story, but I'm curious, like for someone, for a young person that does get hooked on the stuff. Now I'll be honest with you that I got addicted to porn when I was 12 and I'm 25 at the moment. So I had that addiction from 12 up until the age of 22 until I finally decided to rid it from my life, but it wasn't, it wasn't an easy thing to do. And I think from a young person standpoint, they're looking at porn as something that is entertaining. They're looking at it as something like it's real. Imagine if I was to be in those scenes with that girl, wouldn't that be amazing to experience? Like for them, it's all about the sex, but I wanted to ask yeah. you, it was, was it about the sex for you as a guy going in, like looking yeah. at it, Hey, I'm going to have actual sex here. That's going to excite me. Or was it something else that was sort of nagging at you? Like, this isn't right. I feel like I'm cheating on, on the woman that I'm dating or can you help walk us? Through? It's not about sex, is it? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, I made that decision and it like, very quickly that shame became my identity and you were you're in an environment where directors agents producers are telling you well this is just who you are now because what else are you going to do yeah because you 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 essentially have you know you know this 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 jaded image and there's nothing that you can do about it. And so for me like that, like the, the one justified the next. And I quickly believed that there was nothing else I can do. Um, so just to speak to your question, um, the reality is those are people and they're not products. So if you view people like products, yeah. it's going to have an impact on you and it's going to have an impact on how you treat people. Because if you are, treating people like they owe you something and you are consuming them like a product very quickly, the relationships in your life, you're going to be, well, the first time that you don't show up or do something for me, you're going to cut ties with that relationship because everything to you is transactional Mm -hmm. and that, and you don't realize that happens and it it starts to impact your integrity. It It starts to impact the way that you manage your money. It impacts the way that you treat people because at the end of the day, you're saying that it's okay for me to consume this content 
And even if it's on a subconscious level, that is a person. So, and, ju and just to speak from a performer standpoint, it's not like a guy walks into a room, sees a cute girl and they have sex. Yeah. The reality is um, you are paid to be there. So there's the weight of that. So as a guy, um, everything is riding on you. So in a sense where, you know, it, there's, when I was in the industry, there's probably 15 to 20 guys that work consistently. And, and, and here's why um, a director is footing the bill for everything. The, the talent, the location, the permits, the catering, the equipment, the people operating the equipment, you know, so on and so on. So let's say at a minimum, $20,000 is on the line. Everyone is getting paid for sure, except the guy, because if the guy doesn't do his job, there's no product. Yeah. So if the guy can't do it, there, there's no, there's, so yeah. this, this director is going to write all these checks. Yeah, yeah. This director is going to write all these checks for, for something that he's not going to make money off of. So once a director trusts you, then he's going to hire you every time. And so there's a way to that. You mess up once, you're going to, you're going to start looking for someone else. Yeah. Cause everyone's knocking on his door, trying to get a shit, trying to get a shot. Yeah. So, you know, there's a way to that, but the reality is like you're on set and there's a director telling you, what to do and then there's three cameras and then there's someone holding a mic and there's someone holding a light underneath you and there's you know probably someone in the corner eating doritos <laughs> so it's like it's it's like to like seriously like it made me feel so like mm. like so vulnerable afterwards like i i hate like i the I think the last year I was in the industry, I spent like $15,000 on takeout. And it was because like, I did not want to interact with a human being. It was so uncomfortable because you're so exposed. Like, yes, literally you're naked having sex in front of someone, but you're doing that in front of people that it's so monotonous that no one cares. Yeah. You don't care. The person that you're working with doesn't care. And everyone around you doesn't care. And there's just film, you know, there's cameras and lights and sound, and it just needs to be done because at the end of the day, that thing is being sold to make a monetary gain. Yeah. So like once that becomes monotonous, like once an act of intimacy becomes just like not a big deal, it's really negatively impacting your emotions and your, your, you know, you mentally. And to be honest, like, I think someone comes to me, Josh, what is the one thing that you would tell people to get people to stop watching porn, just kind of wake them up. And I would say this. Um, so I was in the industry for six years. There's a thousand films that are still in the internet that I don't want to be there. I can't like, the issue is when people sign a contract, you're selling yourself for sex. Do I read through every nuance of that contract? No, I just sign my name, move on. But what you don't see in that contract is clauses that say, we're going to pay you this one-time fee. You're not going to get royalties. You're not going to make a dime after you sign your name on this and we give you that one check. And in addition to that, we reserve all rights 
to to resell, repurpose, and and to sell this to not just another person. We can resell it and repackage it and sell it to as many third parties for as long as we want. And you're saying yes to that. So, so, so that, so it's consent, like there, there's many people who are out of the industry that don't want that content on the, on, on the internet that, that people are watching, but even deeper than that, there are 30 people who I knew on a personal basis, who I love dearly, who are incredible people mm-hmm. that it went like this, um, all girls, but two. Um, you became really popular in the industry. Your popularity started to dissipate. Um, agents, they abuse this list. It's called a no list. When you get in the industry, they ask you, what are you willing to do? What are you not willing to do? And those things that you don't want to do or you're not willing to do, those things are on your no list. Predominantly things, sometimes people. And then once you're in the industry for a while, if you have a lot of popularity, and you make that agent a lot of money because he's getting 10 to 15% out of every check you get. So your popularity starts to dissipate. Okay. And then that agent's like, oh, well, there's these things that they wouldn't do. And if, if and in the porn industry, a no is always considered a not yet. Yeah. So that not the not yet list. I know that those things are taboo because they haven't done them yet. So I'm going to take these things and I'm going to auction them off to production companies and whoever gives me the biggest dollar bid, I'm going to then come back to that person and say, Hey, um, I know you're not working as much as you were in the past, but um, remember that thing that you said you wouldn't do. If you would be willing to do that, this company is going to willing to give you $50,000 to do it. And then in addition to that, you'll become popular again. And then more often than not, they say yes. And that thing that you you didn't want to do, you did. And now it becomes, well, you did it once. You might as well do it again. So now you're doing that thing you said you didn't want to do. And then that process repeats itself until there's no more things that you said you wouldn't. And you've already done everything you said you, you didn't want to do. And then um, not 100% of agents, but most agents, most agents that are you know high profile agents or they own agencies, they on the side own an escorting agency. So it glamorized prostitution. And they say, well, if you want to make some extra money, since you, since you got yourself popular again, if you want to make some extra money, um, I have this escorting agency. It's no big deal. You just spend a weekend with this, you know, with this guy or with this girl or whatever. And it's, it's called escorting, but you're there to have sex, you know? So just, you know, just do this if you want to make some extra money. And then that happens. And then all of a sudden you've done all the things that you said you didn't want to do. You've done the escorting and all of a sudden, you know, uh, your the phone's not ringing as much as it used to be. So like, well, um, another option is there's feature dancing, which is, um, girls who have a name in that industry. Um, strip clubs will pay a nominal fee, for them to show up and be the feature star for that night. And, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that lasts for a while, but it only lasts as long as the girl is popular or the person is popular. Um, and then again, like same thing with clubs, clubs will pay you to do an appearance, but all of a sudden when all that stuff starts to dissipate, 
and the phone stops ringing, you've had someone for five or six years say, well, this is who you are. Yeah. And your worth is tied up in you soliciting yourself for sex. And when no, when no one is asking you to do this stuff anymore, you look at your life and you think, well, what am I going to do? And for 30 people who I knew and loved dearly, that grew into, well, life must not be worth living because this is who I am. I'm a prostitute. I can't do anything else with my life. If my phone is not ringing, my life is worth nothing. Yeah. And 30 people took their life, either overdose or suicide. And the reality is some of those people were very popular, hundreds and hundreds of scenes. All of those scenes are on the internet. And more often than not, someone who is watching porn on a consistent basis, you're watching an image of a person who took their own life because they hated themselves so much and they felt trapped because of what they did and that thing defined them. And you are getting pleasure from the very thing that killed them. Man, if that's not a good enough reason to quit, and I didn't even realize that when I decided to quit, I was just feeling ashamed. I was feeling not worth anything. I had, and that was, I wasn't even in the industry. I was just watching it yeah, and became so addicted to it. But I think you got to look at the humanity of the people that are actually doing it as well. Yeah. What are they feeling? Cause it is an entertainment industry. It is, yeah. it, they treat people like they're items and right. they're sold as such. Yeah. And so I think that is a, a justified reason if someone is listening to this and they are struggling with it, listen to what Josh said, because he's been in the industry. And if that doesn't shake you up, shake to your core, what else will man? Like, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a epidemic of mass proportions. I mean, the porn industry is a billion dollar industry. It is yeah. affecting the lives of so many people, young people, especially, I yeah. mean, it's changing the way young people view sex and the way they treat women and same yeah. with women, how they treat men or boys to become men as well. Yeah. So the whole, it's an educational platform, 100%. I really believe that. And we're giving people the wrong kind of information, the wrong kind of education going yeah. into what a healthy relationship looks like and healthy yeah. sex life should look like, look like as well. So, but one thing that I was curious about, I mean, you hitting the nail on so many, uh, so many heads at the moment um, with all this information that you're, you're giving people. I'll, I'll, I'm interested in the idea of connection. And because when you do have sex, God obviously says you, you are bonded with that person. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm curious, were you ever interested in or worried about being or feeling that connection towards someone that you could maybe establish a relationship with, or was that not possible at all? Um, so I did. So I never dated anyone outside of the industry while I was in the industry. And, but I did have two relationships that um, were relatively long in the industry. Um, we, I was dating someone for a long time and we had some, it, it, 
I guess it, it was an engagement somewhat, but, um, you know, just trying to go through the motions, try to seem normal, you know, but the reality is this when, so I painted the picture of the guys being the same people over and over again, you know, the, the, the same group of guys that work consistently. I painted that picture to foreshadow this because people generally ask me that. Um, so I'm dating someone and we're in, we, we would say this, we would, we would honestly say this and believe it. We're in a monogamous relationship, even though professionally we both had sex with people for a living. So, and then more often than not, everyone that was our friend was also in the industry. So I'm sitting at dinner and the girl that I'm dating is with me and I'm sitting across from another couple and the girl that's my, you know, at that time, one of my best mates, like this guy, like he, this is his girlfriend and I had worked with her earlier that week and he had worked with the girl that I was seeing and we're, and we're sitting there pretending like it's no big deal. Like it's just work. It's not a thing. We're both in monogamous relationships and to suppress the reality of that is so unhealthy. But for me, uh, like, especially, I don't know how everyone in the industry felt, but for me, like I grew up a very jealous person because I felt like I always had to protect my mom. So because I always felt like I had to protect my mom, I had this um, very protective spirit. So like, this girl who was dating, like she was mine, but she wasn't. Yeah. And and I had to sur- surrender part of myself in that way. And, you know, there, there were, there were times where I would be on set where she was working with another person. Um, there was times mm-hmm. where people like, wanted us to do a scene with other people, like at the same time. And, and the, the worst that it got was when the girl that I was seeing, she wanted to openly talk about what was happening on set. And for me, very against that internally. But what porn does, both on the consumer aspect and the performer aspect, it blurs boundaries. Yeah. It blurs boundaries in a practical way to to you know, to see that in your own life, if you're someone who's consuming pornography, why would you believe it is okay to send a nude photo to a person you don't know? What, like, like, yes, at the root of that, you're, you're wanting attention and affirmation. But my question is, why would you believe that that is okay? It's because you're, you've watched pornography. So that, that nudity and sex all of a sudden becomes not a big deal to you. So since sex blurs the boundary of reality, why not do that? And then now maybe as a guy, like you're going on a, a date with a girl. And if you take a girl out to a dinner and, you know, whatever, you're expecting sex at the end of that. And then it, maybe you're, you're, if, if she doesn't want to do that, you're frustrated. Maybe you're going to verbally abuse them. Yeah. Or in, in some cases, that's how rape happens, because in my mind, if if I create this plausible reality based on 
me understanding what a relationship is based on porn, that mm-hmm. I'm going to believe that I'm going to walk into a room and have sex with someone. So if I take you on a, a date and I pay for your dinner, absolutely, I believe that I'm justified that. Yeah. But that's not reality. So when those bound when those boundaries start to get blurred, even within a relationship, why would you send that text? Why would you say that comment? Because if you're watching porn, all of a sudden you're cheating. Yeah. Because because you are, even with it's a screen as weird as that is, that say you are, you know, you are making uh, an intimate connection with that screen. So there was an exchange there. That didn't happen with your significant other. So all of a sudden your boundaries are blurred. So yeah. Like, why did you send that text? Why did you say that comment? Why did you like that photo? (laughs) Why did you send that DM? Um, Well, you justify it because of how you see sex and how you see relationships. But yeah. So, I mean, to to answer your question, it, it was very unhealthy for me to, be in a relationship and it had, you know, it, it caused mental and emotional trauma that took me a long time to process through. Yeah. I can imagine, man. Like I, I wanted to ask you, we'll we'll get to how you got out of the industry in just a moment. You're in the industry for six years. You were relatively famous for that six year period. I believe you won awards. You won yeah. the top of the industry, I think, on, on your last year. Um, but one of the questions that I did want to ask you is, I've spoken to sexologists, I've spoken to people that are so-called experts in this profession, and I want to be very careful with me steering around this question. Uh, they believe that watching porn with your partner, watching porn in general is not bad. In fact, there's this ethical sense of pornography and yeah. i want i wanted to ask you is that a problem is that the is that correct from their standpoint as being a professional but from someone that has actually been in the industry can you speak to why that is a problem or why not why it isn't a problem if it is yeah it's like so the way that god wires us we are wired a certain way and when you experience something that you were not intended to experience, all of a sudden you develop an appetite for something you were never supposed to have a taste for. So when you're in a relationship, if you bring porn into that relationship, someone might say, I would never cheat on my partner or I would never be open to having an open relationship. But all of a sudden you you watch pornography and then you get you know, in the frontal cortex of your brain, like this is real. This is really happening because there's a a sexual experience. There's a dopamine rush. Like this is really happening. Like regardless of it's a computer screen or not, it's really happening. So mentally and emotionally, that starts to take an impact, starts to have an impact on how you interact with your spouse or with your significant other. And you start to all of a sudden, again, your boundaries, your boundaries start to bend because the things that you would never do, all of a sudden you would do. In addition to that, like porn is it's a counterfeit. 
is a counterfeit variation of sex. It's not real. There's editing and there's a director telling people to do things that more often than not, they don't want to do. So like when you're, when you're seeing this, you know, this physical aggression and these weird, you know, positions and all this stuff coming from someone who's been there, there's people doing things they don't want to do. And then in some cases, they're not okay with it. And so, but that, but they believe that they can't say no because that's their paycheck or they believe they can't say no because that director won't hire them again, or they believe they can't say no because they don't even have the human dignity to say no, because they believe what is happening is just what they deserve. So you're inviting that into your relationship and you're saying that it's not impacting you and it's going to be toxic regardless of who you are, regardless of what you believe it's going to impact you in a, in a very detrimental way. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That makes a lot of sense. And I hope that people that do listen and what and watch this can understand it and apply what you said to their life in some respect by trying to get away from it. Um, yeah. I wanted to, okay. Steer the conversation towards how you got out of the industry uh, was it difficult in that six year period? Did you at any stage of that period, did you want to get out, but struggle to get out? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like after a few years, I was just, just done with it. You know, I was working 25, 30 times a month, which like from the outside looking in, that's like, man, that, that's great. Even like people in the industry. Cause like there were guys struggling to work and, like I never had a dip in my career. I was always, you know, I was working minimum 20, 20 times plus a month. And um, it just, it had a weight on me. And it's like, I want to do other stuff, but then I couldn't. And it just like, it, it sucked, man. Like I, I had the opportunity to do a few uh, movies for HBO and I'm on set and we're, you know, we're on set filming and it's a legitimate movie. And I'm on set, I'm doing this movie. And then I, I, I'm, I'm looking at my script and it doesn't say my name. It says mm-hmm. my stage name. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah. We need you to we need in the credits because we need to advertise it as you're this guy. Because at the time I was one of the most popular porn guys in America. So it's like, oh no, you're here because you're that guy. You're not here because you're good at acting. <laughs> They didn't say that, but I, I knew I knew what it meant. So I I couldn't even identify as myself. Yeah. So um like that that sucked. You know, it's like, man, I'm getting these opportunities, but oh, you're that guy. And that and the weight of that was heavy. And just pretending to be someone all the time. Like you're pretending, like, you know, to 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 make it light, you know, like Tropic Thunder quote, like you're I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. <laughs> Like that's who yeah. I was. I was I, I was going by a stage name, exhibiting you know f- counterfeit emotions, having counterfeit sex, and then getting paid for it. Mm. Like I, I can't explain really. Like most people, are like oh that's awesome. It's like to do something dirty and then get a check for it. There's something like that feels off about that. You know, like something in your gut. It's like. That's just weird, you know, um, but like doing that a thousand times 
had a huge impact on me. So I, you know, I, I had been nominated for best male performer of the year three times. And in 2012, I won the award and a moment that I'd been rehearsing in my head so many times, you know, they call my name. I go up on stage. I say, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they call my name and they call my name and I'm not there. I'm at home on my face thinking about, well, I don't have the guts to kill myself, but how can I do it? Because I see my life and it's like, I don't want to do that anymore. But then just having the, just the gut wrenching pain of feeling, well, there's nothing else you can do. So like, like feeling that. So I, I, I experienced that. And then soon after that, I walk into a bank, I'm cashing a check. And normally I would put it in the Dropbox or the ATM, but it, on this day, it wasn't, it wasn't available. And I didn't want to do that because on the memo of the check, it said what it was for. So I didn't want to face that shame. But on this day, I had to face the music, go up to the clerk, hand them the, hand them the check, deposit the check, get my receipt, and I go to walk away. And they say, Joshua, is there anything I can do for you? Joshua, can I help you? And it paralyzed me because I had not heard my name in over a year because I had stopped talking to my mom. Because of my shame, I stopped answering her calls. I stopped responding to her text. I stopped talking to my brother. I stopped talking to my friends. I removed them, most of them from social media. I was so ashamed of who I was. I was like, how could I ever be a friend? How can I be a son? How can I be a big brother? I'm humiliating to them. I remember going to, my brother's a PhD professor and he, you know, at one of his 15 graduations, um, I, um, I was there and someone recognized me and like I was there supporting my little brother who I was so proud of and just like being identified as that just it just made me feel so embarrassed and like I played it off like it was a cool thing to do like I normally did but um I was just humiliated for him humiliated for myself and like so that led to me just disconnecting and isolating myself from every authentic relationship I had. So in that moment, when I heard my name, it just shattered this reality that I had created. Mm -hmm. And I felt every bit of that pain of not just knowing that my mom was hurting, not because of what I was doing, because I wasn't there and she didn't know if I was okay or not. And I just went home and I looked myself in the mirror and I, I didn't know who was looking back at me. And I broke down and I wept and I picked myself up and pulled myself together. And I called my agent and said, I quit. And I was contracted with a company at the time. I said, I quit. And I contacted my PR person and they put out a press release saying that I quit or retired or whatever. But I ran home to mom and like, that's how I get out of the industry. But like, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't hard for me to leave. Like after that happened, it was like, I was, I was literally running for my life because um, to be completely honest, like I, I, I don't, I don't know for sure what would have happened, but I was not 
in a good place mentally and emotionally and like self-harm was a real possibility for months. It was something I was thinking about. So, uh, but yeah, I, I quit and like in that moment, it's like, I didn't know what else to do. So the only experience they had was in sports and I did a little bit of personal training. So I ran home to mom and applied to every gym in that area. And I got a job at the gym and I quickly realized that um, working 15 hours a, a week at a gym was not going to pay the bills. So I got uh, a full-time job working at a grocery store as well. So I was working at a grocery store and working at a gym. But again, my mom taught me, it's like, whatever you do, do it you know, with everything you got. So I busted my butt in the gym and worked my way up to be lead trainer. And eventually there was another gym in the area that um, one of their head coaches, they left um, to start their own gym. So there was a vacancy for a full-time position with benefits. So I interviewed for that and got that job and um, didn't have to work at the grocery store anymore. And my life looked again, it looked great from the outside looking in, but at night I was having night terrors and, you know, people were saying, you know, pretty nasty things about me, you know, online um, because I left the way I did and like, it was just, I don't know. It was like, everything was going great. I was making money. I was doing something I felt good about. I was helping people. Um, I, I found my voice in where like all the time being on camera and before like in theater, it's like, man, um, I really love people and I really love communicating. I love it. I love taking information and telling someone like, what can you know? Um, and then driving them to feel a certain way about it and then taking that information and those emotions and then pointing them in a direction and what to do with that. And I think, you know, that's kind of the formula of all good communication, like no feel do. And I was like, man, I, I'm really good at this. And then I, I meet a girl and I'm like, hey, um, I've, I've lied to a million girls about my past and it's burned me. I've hurt a lot of people and I lied over and over and over again for that about two year period. I was like, I'm just not going to lie to her. I'm just going to tell her the truth and whatever happens happens. And I told her, I was like, I was in the porn industry for a long time. And she looked at me kind of, um, you know, deer in traffic type of deal. Just didn't know what to say. And then after she processed for a moment, she looked at me and said, I didn't expect you to say that, but I want you to know that a person is not defined by the worst thing they ever do. And also a person is not defined by the best thing they ever do. God defines who you are. Do you know who God is? And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I believe in God. I grew up going to church. Um, my, you know, my family believed in God. I, I would like up until that moment, I would have said, sure, I'm a Christian. I believe that God is real. I believe God exists. I believe God created everything. And she asked me, well, do you have a relationship with God? And I was like, I don't know. And then the more questions she asked, I quickly realized that I didn't have a relationship with God. And it was because how could God have a relationship with a person like me? And, and then she quickly pivoted and just asked me questions about um, my family and my dreams and hopes. And 
later that week, she was like, Hey, there's um, this new church or this you know, relatively new church in the area. I'm going on Sunday. Do you, you want to come with me? Should we go to this church together? It's not the same one that I normally go to, but a lot of people that went to that gym go to that church. I was like, sure. You know, you, she kind of cultivated this curiosity in me because the way that she didn't reject me, she just told me the truth and told me what she believed. And I go and still thinking, you know, what is the, what what's going to happen? You know, but just really curious. And when I get there um, at the church, the first thing I see on this giant, like um, wooden plaque is their mission statement. And their mission statement is uh, we want to love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And I was like, you want to love me where I'm at? You don't know where I've been. Like, because I, and and then that was the kind of be, the beginning of me, like really seeing I lived my life the way I did. And I made the decisions that I made because I viewed myself as unlovable. Mm. And we sit down and worship music was great. And, you know, uh, so someone who has been in, you know, theater and, and whatnot, like I appreciated the, you know, the, the cinematic experience, the light and the, and, you know, the worship was great and the singing was great and, you know, the objects were great. And then this guy sits up there and he's not in a, a suit and tie because, you know, that, that, that's where, when I grew up, it, it was a, it was a very, you know, it was a, a Southern Baptist church. And it was very, you know, you're going to hell, <laughs> believing God, or you're going to hell type of deal. And not, like, that's not what he said, but that's what I heard, you know? And this guy talks like starts talking about how he's not perfect and how he's made a lot of mistakes in his life. But God met him where he was and loves him anyway. And he starts talking about this story about Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth was um, the, the last remaining member of this kingdom. And when a new kingdom, you know, when a new king stepped into place, it was, um, you know, it was common that the previous king would kill every single remaining person left in that previous kingdom because he didn't want anyone to believe they had any rights to that kingdom. But David was a different type of king. So instead of killing everyone, he's like, is Mephibosheth, does anyone know where he is? Can we go find him? And they go and find him. And Mephibosheth had, he, he had gotten hurt and he was um, disabled and crippled in some way. And he was on the street and he was begging. And when he was found, he saw himself as guilty and he believed that he was going to receive death because of who he was. And that's how he identified himself. Yet instead, David offers him a seat in his kingdom at his table, not for a day, not for a week, but forever. And not just any seat, a seat bes beside him, the best seat. And then the pastor says, you know what, as beautiful as that is, that is what Jesus does for you and for me. Because in this world, we believe that if we're good enough, we can, we can make our way up to this mountain 
that God is on the top of. And we believe that, well, some people will just be good enough or some people will do amazing things. And, you know, it doesn't matter how you get up this mountain. You'll you'll just get up there eventually if you try hard enough, if you do enough, if you give enough, if you do all the right things. But I'm here to tell you, he saw you where you are in the middle of your brokenness and mm -hmm. knew that you could never earn his love or earn a right standing to make it all your way up to him. So instead, he came down to meet you where you are. Jesus came down the mountain to meet us in the middle of our brokenness. And he meets us right here and says that I love you and I'm willing to die for you. And I was like, wow. And then I quickly saw the father that I always longed for. <laughs> I always had. And in that moment, I gave my life to Jesus and I surrendered not just the, the shame and the guilt of being in porn. I surrendered the shame and the guilt and the feeling of I wasn't good enough to God. I gave all that to him and he, and he removed that from me and instantaneously, like, did my life change in some ways? Yes. But like, is from a, a peace standpoint, like immediately I experienced a peace that truly surpasses understanding the night terrors that I had had for over two years. They left and never came back. The images that used to be in my head all the time from being in that industry with having over a thousand partners gone. All of a sudden, all of a sudden that was removed from me. Did I have to do a lot of work to where I am today? Absolutely. Did I, did I still have a bad perception of sex, relationships, all these things? Yes. But God gave me a new heart and a new mind and pointed me in a different direction. And he gave me the tools and the gifts and the inspiration and the purpose to pursue a different life. That is, once again, see what I mean? <laughs> Powerful story, my friends. Like. I'm not kidding. That is amazing. And everything that you said there, I was just reflecting on God's goodness, God's grace, God's forgiveness. And I'm curious about that girl. Did she end up becoming your wife or was it someone yeah, else? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's my wife. Yeah. So um, that was, that was like Easter of 2014. And then, you know, we, we got engaged in November of that year and October of that year. And then we got married in July of that following year. But yeah, we've been married for five years. Uh, we have three beautiful sons and yeah. And we, we actually started a ministry together, um, almost a year ago. Wow. Okay. Uh, tell me about, this is a question that I've wanted to ask you ever since I heard about your story. Tell me about what you've learned about forgiveness as a whole. What oh, do you, yeah. what is that for you? Yeah, for me, um, hmm. I mean, so for me, I've, I've understood that like forgiveness is, is more than an emotion. It's a decision. Yeah. And we, we often place 
presuppositions on or parameters around forgiveness. So if we look at a person who wronged us and we're like, I'm, and they apologize, but, but they don't do what you expected them to do. Or even if you extend forgiveness and there's not instantaneous reconciliation, we feel disappointed. And if we experience that once, it's going to slow us to do it again. And we can see that in scripture, while we were enemies of God, while we were sinners, while we were literally enemies of God, rebelling against him, in the middle of that, he chose to die for us. He chose to suffer and die the most humiliating, excruciating death anyone could die on the cross. And he did that for us while knowing what we were doing mm. without any expectation or guarantee that we would accept what he did on our behalf. Mm. So if, if God forgives us that way, if, you know, when, when, when we, you know, are in Christ, our sins are removed as far from us as the East is from the West. He blots out our sins when we, when we call out on him, if that is true about what we do, how are we supposed to live? So for me, um, understanding the character of God allowed me to shape my understanding of forgiveness. Because once you understand the magnitude of what you have been forgiven for and how he went about mm. extending that forgiveness and how deep and how gracious that forgiveness is, the proxy of that should be you reciprocating that in your own life. And for me, I realized that I did have some underlining animosity towards my father, not because he did anything wrong to me, but because in some ways I blamed, I justified the things that I did because of the relationship we didn't have, because that's the only thing that he did to me. He he, he, he never was in a relationship with me. So, um, my, my wife is amazing. So she, she calls this, um, my, um, my, my half brother that I didn't really know. He, she, she finds him on Facebook and gets my dad's number for me to call. And I call him and I'm like, you know, I haven't talked to you in 10 years or so, but, um, I was like, I just want you to know, like, before he says anything, I was like, Hey, I just want you to know that I have held a grudge and a lot of animosity in my heart toward you. And I blamed a lot of things on you. And I just want to say that I'm sorry. I do wish that we've had a, that I wish that we had a relationship and, but I just want you to know that I'm sorry that I've held that in my heart against you. And he, you know, he said, you know, a lot of the same things and we had a great conversation, but the reality is, um, is he my best friend now? And is he in my life consistency consistently? No, he's not. Like, I mean, I, I talked to him, you know, I talked to him probably 10, 15 times a year. Um, he knows my children. He's met them. Um, every time I'm in proximity of, you know, every time I visit my mom, I try to stop by his house at least for, you know, an hour or so. 
So like, but I don't, I think often we, we withhold our forgiveness because it needs to be on our terms. Yeah. And God never did that to us. So he's calling us to live in a way that's so different. And, and when you know that your life is not about you, it makes it easier because God wants you to do that because he wants people to be at, in awe of, of, of you. He wants, he wants people to be in awe of your character because when you act that way, why would you do that? Yeah. First Peter 3.15 tells us we need to have an answer for the faith that we have. It's like, if I can live my life, if I can live my life in a way that you can see the goodness of God, it provides me the opportunity to tell you about the goodness of God. And yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's it. One of the best explanations I've heard on forgiveness so far. And I I was, I was writing a book on forgiveness. I've called it the Eagle has landed arriving at the place of forgiveness yeah. And it's it's one of those areas where it's it's a very deep topic to actually un- uncover, but it's really simple <laughs> at the same time. And it's yeah. it's always interested me of forgiveness is this place that we can arrive at if we choose to arrive at because Christ did that for yeah. us. There would be no reason to forgive or there would be no forgiveness if Christ didn't forgive us first. So, yeah. you know, like that's... It's an amazing for me, man. I can't, I'm more struck by all this. I'm, I'm loving talking to you. Um, I've got a few more questions for you, Josh, if you don't mind. This is a yeah, question sure. that I would like to ask you, but what do you, we kind of touched on it a little bit in the very beginning when we, before we started recording, but what do you love the most about your story and yourself? Yeah. Um, what I love the most about my story is so I spent so I've been standing on stages telling my story for about five years and I had a lot of pressure on myself that I put on myself it's like man I need to do all this stuff and I need to tell this story I need to tell my story so people can know about my story and God in his because God is gentle Mm. he is patient he is kind and um, we see this interaction with Elijah, one of the great prophets in the Bible. He's in this cave and he's he's seeking after God. And there's this earthquake, but he what God wasn't in the earthquake. And there was this fire and he wasn't in the fire. And there was this giant wind and he wasn't in the wind. And all of a sudden there was a whisper. There was a whisper. And often when our minds are too loud. It's not that God's not speaking. It's that our minds are so loud that we can't hear what he's saying. So in that moment, God whispered to me, hey, that's not your story. It's mine. Because what did I do? Nothing. I accepted what was done on my behalf. So, yes, tell that story but tell it through the lens of it's about me and what I did and take the pressure off because you know what? My plans will never lack my provision. If there's one, there's something that I want to accomplish. 
don't worry. I, I spoke and created the universe. I got this. So just know that, yes, tell your story. And yes, I'm calling you to do great things in my name. But take like have humility in that it's not about you. So, so that, that is my favorite part of my story. And what I love about myself is that it is cultivated this, um, both courage and humility. So, um, the, the Hebrew word anava, it means, uh, God, like God, divine, like a, a godly divine space or God, um, um, the word it's like a god-ordained space like a predetermined space that god has for you and that space is where god wants you to be like living in his will following his purpose for your life utilizing your gifts and your talents that he gave you to thrive he wants you to win he wants you to kill it so but you have to have courage to step in that space because it's scary because more often than not, God does want, doesn't want to use the thing that you want to do. He wants you to do the thing that you're terrified to do, because if you could do it on your own, what good would God be? Yeah. But you can't, you can't do it on your own. So he wants you to have courage to step in that space, but you have to have humility to not step outside of that space and believe that you can do it on your own because you can't. And if you make it about yourself, things are just going to crumble. So I'm that I grew up being very self-centered and prideful. And it was because I believed that I had to prove that I was good enough. And then by realizing I could never be good enough, but God loves me in spite of that and meets me right where I am is my favorite thing about myself. If you could go back to your younger self and change I'm anything. Suck her right in the nose. <laughs> <laughs> Did not expect that. <laughs> All right. But aside from like sucker punching yourself in the face, if you could give yourself one piece of advice, what would you tell yourself? Exactly that. Like you're enough. Because I, because up until that moment that I gave my life to Christ and, and it still took a little bit of time. Um, I believe that I wasn't. And that's why I said yes to so many things because I believed even in that moment. Um, so I have a, I have a podcast called counterfeit culture and it's born out of, you know, just a talking about what is a counterfeit. And I believed in that moment as I was hearing that agent paint this picture of success that he was painting. I, I heard a counterfeit version of everything I ever wanted, but I believed, well, maybe I'm not good enough for my dream. So I'm just going to have to buy what he's selling because maybe this is just who I am. But I was wrong. This is my all-time favorite question. I ask everyone at the end of all my conversations, Josh, thank you so much for sharing the things that you've shared during this conversation. It's been honestly, for lack of a better word, incredible. And I, I know my audience knows that I use that word a lot. <laughs> I probably have exhausted the word, but I truly mean it, that it has been incredible for me to listen to 
and my audience. Uh, before I ask you the final question, where do you want people to connect with you, learn more about your story, uh, find you, all that sort of stuff? Yeah. So all, all of my social media is I am Joshua Broom. So that's all my social media. And then my website is joshuabroom.me. Um, and that's where you can find everything, but that in my podcast. So my pod, my podcast is called counterfeit culture and you can find that on the, the edify app. So edify has tons of really great, um, Christian podcasts. They're amazing. In addition to that, it's everywhere you can consume podcasts, but yeah, counterfeit culture, Joshua broom, check it out. I'll make sure everyone knows where to find you. Okay, Josh, my, my final question for you. It's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you. Now, this might be a bit touchy of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic for sake of argument. I wanted to ask you this question. You'll, you'll soon see why. Uh, they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want? that film to say and to show about your life? Um, I would love for it to say and show that um, I grew up incredibly loved. I learned what sacrifice, hard work, and love looked like. Um, I believed the lie that if you compromise yourself, you can find happiness or happiness can be found in material things, monetary things, um, affirmations. Um, I made over a million dollars. I made over a thousand movies. I traveled the world, yet I found emptiness and I realized that I was bankrupt. But in the middle of that, I found hope ironically, which is my wife's name. <laughs> um, I, I found hope in someone saying, Hey, you're not your biggest blunder. You're not your greatest achievement. You are who God defines you are. And even though I lived a large part of my life up to that point, making a lot of mistakes, being prideful, um, failing in so many ways i learned the best lesson that anyone could ever learn no matter where you are where you've been what you've done you don't have to stay where you are you can pick yourself up you can dust yourself off and you can live the life that god created you to live and healing is possible and what I love is many people ask me, what are you going to tell your kids? You know, you got all those movies online. What are you going to tell your kids? It's like, man, I'm going to tell them the truth. I made a lot of mistakes. And unlike some people, my mistakes are tangibly found. But guess what? Um, you're going to know some of these stories because I taught you about them. Um, you know, Moses killed a guy. David cheated on his wife and had the person that she was married to killed. Peter denied Jesus to his face. And then 
Paul used to pull Christians out of their home and have them persecuted. And all these people God saw in the middle of their brokenness, loved them, restored them, and changed the trajectory of their life because they had a radical experience of the love of God. Dad had that experience too. And my life has changed because of it. And I'm not perfect, but guess who is? Jesus. And the rest of my story would be me telling people how good and how great God is. It reminds me of that. I think it's a Bible verse. So that's saying God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Yeah. Doesn't matter how broken we think we are. God pieces us back together again. Yeah. And we're never, I don't, I don't believe that we're ever broken to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. It's more about our perception of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You said it. Josh, man, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate your time, your stories, everything that you've shared here. Thank you so much for joining me today on, on the Storybox podcast. Really do appreciate you, man. Absolutely. It was my honor. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.